Good morning, everyone. Happy Palm Sunday. Now, I'll tell you a little bit with this message. So, I don't feel like, I heard, I've heard people say sometimes, maybe they're a painter or a sculptor or something like that, and they say, I don't really create, the, I don't feel like I create the art, I feel like I'm discovering what's already there. And sometimes I feel like that with a message, and I'm so thankful for that. I feel like the Lord has really been so faithful in giving words for me to share. And it's, in preparing the message, I don't feel like I'm trying to put a message together. I feel like I'm discovering something already there. And this one was a little bit of a struggle for me because it's Palm Sunday. And there's, I've grown up in church. I know, I know what you teach on Palm Sunday. And this, probably it's not going to start it's not going to start off sounding like the typical Palm Sunday message. I think we're going to end up there, but bear with me in that. So I re- I recognized I really believe the Lord gave me this word several weeks ago that he wanted me to share it here today. And then I look at the calendar and go, "Lord, are you sure because it's Palm Sunday?" There's a certain kind of message that you preach on Palm Sunday. And this doesn't quite fit. As I work through it, though, I do, I do think it actually will fit. I do think we will end up there. So um, we're going to start off in Acts chapter 15. And right away, you know, wait, that's not where you start off on a Palm Sunday, but okay. Okay, Jason, we'll follow you. So we're going to start off in Acts chapter 15, verse 13. And as you're getting there, I'm going to go ahead and open in a word of prayer so we can begin. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for this word. Lord, above all else, what matters is that you're pleased. You're pleased with this word, and it has the impact that you desire, Lord. I pray for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me give you a little context with Acts chapter 15. So this is a really important, pivotal point in church history. This is the Jewish church. They're meeting together and saying, what do we do with the Gentiles that are getting saved? Gentiles are non-Jewish people. They were not raised Jewish. They were not raised under the law of Moses. They were not raised learning the Old Testament. And now these non-Jewish people are getting saved. And the Jewish people are saying, what do we require of them? There's this debate. Do we require them to become Jewish and then they're Christian? Or are they Christian without following Jewish law? Or what do we do? And that was quite a controversy there they had. So they actually had, hey, we're going to get together, the church in Jerusalem, we're going to get and we're going to figure this out. And they hear testimony from the Apostle, uh, Apostle Peter. He had gone to Cornelius' house, a, a non-Jewish person, and saw the Holy Spirit break out there in his family. And they listened to Paul and Barnabas and all the things that had happened with them among the Gentiles. And they hear this testimony. And then James, who's the head of that church, and kind of leading up this group, says in verse 13, when they had finished, referring to Paul and Barnabas, telling them what's going on, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. 
Simon, that's Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So James stands up and says, Hey, this really isn't that weird. Amos already prophesied. That quote is from the book of Amos in chapter 9. And he says, look, Amos already foretold. God already spoke to Amos and said, I'm going to restore David's fallen tent that all of mankind may be able to seek the Lord, even the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord. So the Lord already is telling in advance, there's going to be Gentiles that are going to come to me. The non-Jewish people, by the way, that's, that's us. We're included in that group. They're going to come to me. So, church, it's not that surprising, and let's not make it difficult on those that want to come to God. The title of my message today is The Tent of David, sometimes called the Tabernacle of David. In Amos, it refers to God restoring David's fallen tent. And I want to make sure I'm very clear. I want to be very careful when I'm sharing, especially from the pulpit. There are definitely are commentaries that simply say, well, that's just referring to the nation of Israel and the people of Israel. And I don't disagree with that at all. But there was something called David's tent or David's tabernacle that I think at the very least carries the same idea. So I want to take a look at that. I want to explain that. So a little history lesson so that we know what we're talking about. Back when, way back, God brings the children of Israel out of Egypt and Moses leads them out. And he gives, God gives Moses this very complex layout of a tabernacle that they could have in the wilderness. You have the Ark of the Covenant inside of it, and you have a, a tense, you have a layer around that, a layer of curtains around that called the Holy of Holies. And then you have this holy place, and then you have this other line that's a courtyard, and you have these barriers really to protect the people from God's holiness. God's presence, he's, he's teaching of, my presence is so powerful and I'm so holy, and you human, human beings are not, and I'm protecting you, I'm, I'm creating these boundaries to protect you from my presence. But that was never God's ultimate heart. God's ultimate heart is us to know him, not have those boundaries. But at that point, you have the Mosaic Tabernacle and you have these boundaries between the Ark of the Covenant and everybody else. You go through time, you go centuries later, you have Solomon's Temple. That first time that there was actually a truly permanent stone structure, incredibly beautiful, uh, huge, and considered 
one of the wonders of the of the ancient world. I mean, just amazing. But again, it had boundaries and walls and things that kept people from the presence of God. And that was last all the way from Solomon's time through these kings and down the road. And there's a part where Israel's exiled for a while, comes back and tries to restore it. And then many hundreds of years later, the time of Jesus, you have Herod's temple. This was built by the Herod dynasty. Gigantic, amazing. And again, layers and walls of things that kept you from God's presence and kept had a very holy place that only the high priest could go, and then there were places other people could go around the outside of it, the courtyard. But among all of that, the little period during David's time, after the after Moses' tabernacle, before Solomon's temple, there's this little there's this time where David recovers the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines, and he sets up a tent called David's Tabernacle. He puts the ark there. And it's interesting, we don't necessarily have a lot of details of it. It's recorded in First Chronicles chapter 16. It's also recorded in Second Samuel chapter 6. And David has these worshipers around it, and he re he, he's following parts of the law of Moses with all the sacrifice system, and he, but he really puts a lot of worshipers around it, and commentaries and artistic depictions of it always have it with an open front where you could see the ark. It didn't have the same boundaries. It wasn't built quite like, wasn't quite like what you see with Moses' tabernacle. It wasn't quite like what you see with the later temples. It has this open part and instead of boundaries, it had people worshiping. You, you see a tent, but you see the front open on, on all the depictions. And when Amos is prophesying, I, I, I believe he's saying, I want, the, the want to restore David's tabernacle where anybody can come and seek the Lord. The Lord's available. He's accessible to anybody. That is what I want to look at today. I think David was on to something there. That really feels, that seems to be, I'm going to, we're going to explore through Scripture here and see what is God's heart when it comes to being available and accessible for people to come to him. In 1 Chronicles 17, or also 2 Samuel 7, David decides he wants to build God a house, a temple, something more permanent. He says, I live in a palace of cedar, and God God lives in a tent. Now, this can't be right. This is my paraphrasing. And he has a prophet there, Nathan the prophet. And Nathan the prophet starts off by saying, uh, David, do whatever's on your heart. God's with you. This is me paraphrasing. Then Nathan gets the word of the Lord. It's kind of like, wait, hold on. Uh, you, need, you need to tell David this. And God starts talking about, I never asked for a house of cedar. Ever since the children of Israel came out of Egypt, I've been in a, my, my presence has been in a tent. I never asked for 
a permanent structure or house like this. And he goes on to tell David, I'll make a place for you. I'll prepare a place. I'll make, I'll make your house last and endure. And he allows David's son Solomon to build him a temple. But God's never been real focused on, I want a structure that that's, that's the only place I am. Because God is omnipresent. Fancy theology team for, theology term for he's everywhere. I want to look through what does it, what is God's heart when it comes to these boundaries, these barriers between him and us and, and anyone who wants to come to him? I want to talk about physical ones and I want to talk about what I'm going to call non-physical barriers. To highlight what I mean about that, what do I mean by non-physical? What are these obstacles that get in people's way of coming to God? I'm going to focus on an event that happened during what we call the, the Passion Week. So this is Palm Sunday. This is when what we call the triumphant entry. This is where Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And I will refer you to Pastor Chad's message this morning in Henderson on, uh, for a really great breakdown on what, uh, what really happened on Palm Sunday. I encourage you to listen to that later. Jesus comes into Jerusalem and they throw a big, and the crowds throw him a big party, but Jesus is weeping because he knows he's going to be rejected. He knows that they, that he's, that they're missing their opportunity to really receive him, what he was actually there to do. But after that, Jesus' first public act is he goes into the temple and he overturns the money changers' uh, tables and runs out the people who are trying to sell stuff. Let me read that for you in Mark 11. So Mark chapter 11, 15 through 17. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Very famous account. A lot of times referred to, yeah, Jesus overturning the money changers' tables, and but Why? Why did he do that? So what was going on? So you have the temple. You've got the Holy of Holies. And there's a heavy veil, a heavy curtain that blocks everyone off from that except for the high priest. And you've got the holy place. And you have courtyard around the temple. And that's courtyard for the Gentiles. That's for people to come in and learn about God. Anyone could come and seek the Lord and learn about God, except at this point, it was a mess. It was full of people selling things and people exchanging currency. And why? Mosaic law, the law given to Moses, had a lot of animal sacrifices. 
that you were required to do. So, kind of a natural extension of that, merchants kind of set up shop and said, hey, well, we'll just sell those animals right here in the temple. This kind of seems like a natural extension of Moses' law. Hey, we're doing, we're doing what God wants, right? You also have people coming to the temple from far away, different, different regions, different areas that use different currency, especially around Passover time. So you have people coming in, well, they're money changers. You don't have the right currency to buy these animals. Let me, I'll change you this currency that you use for what this currency that you need. And along the way, you know, I won't quite give you a good rate. Money changers made their money by not giving you the full value of what you gave them. That was how they made their profit was. You gave them what should have been five shekels worth of something else. They only give you four shekels and they make a, they make a profit off of that. So you have, you have this commerce, this business going on, and it seems like it's linked to, a nat, it's just a natural extension of Moses' law, but God himself, Jesus, walks in and he's furious. And he's knocking over their tables and he's running them out. It also talks about not carrying merchandise through there. Commentators will say that at that point, the temple complex was so large Coming through that court was kind of a shortcut to get your goods to market. People were just using it just to kind of get to get their goods to market, and he's disrupting that. And Jesus makes such a scene here. The Pharisees, especially in Matthew's account, says Pharisees wanted to kill him. He is he's disrupting the what they way they do church. And we can look at that and say. That's great. What's it got to do with us? What I hope to get across in this message is I really believe Wellspring is called to be a place people can come meet God. We went out yesterday. That was such a blessing to go out and invite people to church. And a lot of people were, seem to be receptive, at least. But some of their first questions were, would I be welcome? Some of the questions we were asked were, would, I, would you be okay with me coming to church? And our answer is, yes, you're welcome. But how do we... I love that, and we, but I want to make sure that... We, we need to make sure that we are really good at that. When I talk about the money changers and buying and selling the animals, I can tell you we are not a money-driven church. We're definitely not. That's, that's just, that is not an issue for Wellspring. We're not after people's money. So maybe this doesn't apply to us. Maybe we're good. Except, is it possible that sometimes in the church... We in the church can sometimes try to sell other people on our, on our own ideas instead of God, instead of God's ideas. So when someone comes into the church, what do they do? They, do they, they're coming to learn about God. Do we sometimes put up obstacles to that? Let me give you an example. Um, having a Bible study 
and a visitor comes. They may not be comfortable coming Sunday morning, but they want to come into Bible study, and they want, I've been in this situation. Visitor comes, and we're, we're going to talk about the Bible, we're going to talk about God, but somebody else in the study has a pet theology or a pet argument. They kind of want to take over the Bible study a little bit and direct it the way they want for their own ideas. Maybe for a more experienced church person, maybe just kind of go, that's them being them, you know. But what's it do to that visitor who's trying to find out about God and is getting, and there's this obstacle that comes up, somebody trying to sell them on their ideas, arguing over anything. It can be anything. There's no way I can make a comprehensive list. But it can be... If you're like me and you worked at a seminary for several years, pet theologies are almost uh, a given. Someone that takes a portion of Scripture takes it out of balance or out of context. It could be a prosperity message. It can be an extreme idea on healing or spiritual gifts that's taken way out of context. Or it can be we still need to do parts of the Old Testament law. That seems to be a big one for some reason. They want to hang on to, well, we still need to hang on to certain parts of this or certain ways of doing that, certain ways of worship, certain ways of looking, certain ways, any of it. Somebody's got their pet theology, their pet agenda, and that gets in the way of that person who genuinely wants to seek God but runs headfirst into this obstacle, this wall of somebody else's idea. They come into a church and maybe they start hearing, they hear people criticizing another church or a popular leader or popular band, whatever. And they're like, I don't need another, I don't need to come to another place and hear people bashing other people. I can get that anywhere. I can get that in any part of the world. I don't have to come to church for that. They come in seeking something real, but they get, they run headfirst into this wall, this boundary of, just another place where people are griping about other people. Here's a big one. I gave it its own section in my notes. Personal politics. Political views. Dun, dun, dun. I know it's happened. That people have come, have said, I, I'd like to know God, but I cannot... I can't be part of your church because I don't agree with the politics. I don't agree with other people's politics. We don't, we don't have a political stance. We have to address things now. I have to be careful with that because there are things that have become political issues that are actually scriptural issues, and we have to be true to following scripture and preaching scripture. But when it comes to certain political preferences or things like that, someone can come in and suddenly they run into... Well, they've got a different political view than me. I'm not going to be welcome there. Hopefully, they're not. Hopefully, that that's not how we come across. Let me draw that comparison again with the money changers. It seemed like the money changers and the merchants seemed like a, just a natural extension of Moses' law. A lot of people, a lot of Christians I know feel that their political views are a natural extension of Scripture. Whether they're conservative or whether they're liberal. 
however they vote, they tend to believe that their point of view is coming from Scripture. And, it, and, won't, and not necessarily detect that that can be an obstacle to somebody else. Well-intentioned people. I know people as fellow believers in the Lord that vote differently than I do, and yet I think very well of them. And I would not want that to be an issue that would hinder. And imagine if we were having our disagreements or something and another, and a new believer or someone seeking ran into that. Said, hey, well, hey, you're not going to, you're not going to accept me because of my political view. I, I like to do this mental exercise for myself of God's called us to reach Communities, communities, and neighborhoods. There's no reason to think that everybody we run into has is, is voted the same way that we voted. There's no reason to think that. I, I wonder sometimes, in talking with believers, they like, I'm ready to handle anything. If they've got whatever uh, addiction problem is there, whatever this issue is, I'm ready to handle anything until they run into someone who voted, voted differently than they did. And they're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know. I was ready to handle all those really, those really tough issues. I was ready to handle, but I can't handle somebody with a different view than me, political view. We're going to have to prioritize. The word of the Lord is more important than whatever current event happened, or whatever this or whatever that happened. You say, what, what's that got to do with? Jesus cleansing the temple, money changers. Is it possible that if we tell people, come and hear the word of the Lord, the words of life, eternity, these incredibly huge things, and then they come and we give them our own view. Are we not robbing them, kind of? That seem a little bait and switch. You were going to get, I was going to give you the words of life, but let me give you my opinion instead. And they're going, oh, I could have gotten that anywhere. I could, go on, I could go online and get any political opinion I want. I came here to hear the Lord. I think we could possibly rob people with that if we're not careful. So those are the boundaries I want to point out. Those are the possible barriers, the walls that we can put up that are not physical. But what about the physical ones? The walls of these... Are walls of brick, walls of concrete at the Henderson location, walls, this. People are not as willing, I'm going to tell you something that you already know, people are not as willing to walk into a church as they used to be. In the U.S., about 25 years ago, about 75% church attendance. Today, it's something like 45%. Eddie, Eddie just said it. He had no idea I was going to say this, but he just said it at, at the in prayer. Feels like less than half the people out there. Feels like the majority of people out there don't know the Lord. I think it's a very, very fair statement. That's different than we're used to. What if people won't come into the church the building? Can they still be saved? And say, well, that seems like a simple question. I, I, over the years, I've heard some different thoughts on it. I've heard people say, well, if you can't get people to come into the church building, they're not going to get saved. They have to come down to the altar and get saved. 
I'm thinking, I didn't get saved at a church altar. My parents led me to the Lord at home. Is God only God inside certain buildings, or is he God everywhere? Does he want to live inside building, inside certain buildings, or does he want to reach people everywhere? So the Apostle Paul addressed Greek philosophers in Acts 17. This is part of his presentation to the Greek philosophers that were there. And he's trying to, so he's trying to explain to people who have no idea about God and the Old Testament and Moses. They don't know any of that. So he's trying to give them very basic fundamentals. And he says in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Paul saying, you need to fundamentally understand Greek culture. The real God does not live inside of buildings that people built. And somebody that grew up in church his whole life and everything, I like, yeah, of course. And then I think, that actually challenges some of the mindset that I've, I've kind of always grown up with no one ever really meant it overly religious or anything, but kind of always grown up with the idea that, well, you want to meet God, you got to come to the to the building with the steeple on it. You got to come to the, or it's got a cross on the front. You got certain buildings, certain churches, that's where God is. And no, fundamentally, Paul's saying here's some basic things you need to know about the real one true God is he doesn't live in temples made by people. And how much that challenges my church mindset. Now, let me be very careful here. I'm not at all against church buildings. You need, we need a place to come together. The Bible tells us we come together and we don't forsake assembling together. We need a place to teach and equip us to go and do ministry. We need a place for discipleship, of course. But what if people need to meet the Lord, but they're not willing to come into, for whatever reason, and maybe it's their past experience with church or what they've been told about church, they're not willing to come in those those doors. Let me give you an idea of what God said that he wanted. He didn't necessarily wasn't all that interested. He allowed it, but he wasn't really all that interested in, in David wanting to build him a, house, a fancy temple. But there's something God does very much want when it comes to temples. And it's in 1 Peter 2.5. God says, writing through Peter, says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house or temple to be a holy priesthood Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. A temple made out of living stones. People, us. A priesthood, because it used to be only the high priest could go in through those boundaries and get past those curtains and actually be in the Holy of Holies. Now God's saying through Christ Jesus, I want all of you to be that priesthood. I want all of you to be able to come to me 
And you're going to be a temple collectively. You together are being built together. You're living stones. You're part of God's temple. A living temple can go where the people are. People are unwilling to come into a physical structure, a physical building. Then let's go to where the people are. You're a living temple. You are part of God's temple when you're among your family, when you're in your workplace, your neighborhood, if you're in school, around your classmates, wherever you are, they're right next to the temple of God. You're a living stone. You are an extension of where God lives. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. So there God's right there for them to get for them to meet him for them to be curious about him be able to ask questions be able to say hey I'd like to learn about this God who who is this We have on, on our heart as a church that we want to Reach out to people. We have we have plans to reach out. We even have a tent of kind of ironically for this message. That means we want to go out and we want to say, "Hey, we under- we're, we understand right now. It's hard to get people to come into the church building, but we, as part of God's temple, let's go to them. Let's go where they are." So we're going to want to we're we're going to do we start some yesterday and we're going to continue we're going to be doing some outreach things going out to reach people. We want to be like that tent of David where they're like wait I can this is accessible. I don't have to go through three different layers of boundaries and to come to to try to meet God. You're you're telling me I can get you can tell me about him. I can meet him right here, right now. We want to see that. Obviously, we want to encourage people in discipleship and getting connected with other believers. Certainly so. But the only introduction people may have to God, the only chance to meet Jesus may be us going to them. They may not come in here. They may not come in right away. As we're doing this, I want that's what I want to encourage. I want us to realize that God's desire is to have a tent of David where anybody can come. It says all of mankind, it says including the Gentiles, including those that were not Jews, including anybody can come and ask about God. I want that to be us. I want that to be me in my workplace. I'm seeking the Lord more and more for that. I want to be able to... There are people at my workplace I want to reach, and there's people that are curious, but they're not going to go to church. But they're curious, and they want to ask questions. Probably people, the people in your workplace, your family, your neighborhood, your, that are like... Yeah, I'm not setting foot in a church, but I'm sure curious about this God. Can I meet him through you? Can you tell me about him? And what we have to be careful about 
is not necessarily requiring them to come through physical boundaries because they may not come into this physical building. And we got to be careful to not be like the money changers and put up, put up obstacles to them ourselves instead of giving them what they really need, trying to give them something, our own agendas, because that's also an obstacle to them. We need to be intentional and purposeful, be able to give them what they're looking for, be able to answer their questions about God, be able to tell them, be able to testify. We may not be able to get them. That's, this is a different mindset for me too. We may not be able to rush them into the building. Might have to work with them where they are because they might not want to come quite yet. Dealing with a generation where there are people who have never set foot in a church and yet have their minds made up of how bad church is. And the only way to change that is not arguing with them, but it's showing them the love of God. So I'm actually going to get ready. I'm going to invite worship worship team back up. I will have a close here, and then we're also doing communion. So if the ushers can get ready for that as well, be able to pass out the uh, communion. I want to bring this back to this week that's coming up, this Palm Sunday, between Palm Sunday and Easter. So many key things happen. But there's one, I already mentioned Jesus cleansing the temple, but there's another one, at Jesus' death. And I'll be honest, sometimes I forget this, this one. So much happens around the crucifixion, so much happens at his death, and sometimes I forget this one. It's in Mark 15. It's recorded in in several of the Gospels, but this one in particular, I want to read verse 37. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Jesus dies on the cross, and what is the first thing we have recorded happening? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was this amazingly thick curtain that separated everybody from the Holy of Holies. Only the priests could go in. And the moment Jesus gives up his dying breath, his last breath, that curtain is miraculously split. That had to be really scary for the people there to see that. Because their concept was there's no way the average person could ever enter God's presence. And here God is saying, now you can I'll split that curtain, that boundary, that barrier that keeps people from me. I'm going to tear it right from top to bottom. And that's really exciting for us. But today I want to, I want to remind us, I want to push a little more and say, it's not just for us, it's for the people out there too. So here's the challenge today. Our challenge is to not let any of our church habits or programs or anything else, our challenge is not to sew that curtain back up. God tore that curtain and wants everybody to be able to come to him. And the challenge for me and challenge I want to share with you is to not stitch it back up. 
not put up boundaries that are going to keep people from coming to God. He split it open, let it, let it be open. Let, it, let people have access to God. Be that living temple that people need to come to. Not a physical one, but a living one. With that, I'm going to pray. And here in a moment, we're going to do, we're going to take communion together. And I love taking communion on a Palm Sunday. Because it was, because this week, we remember the Last Supper. One of the many events happened between Palm Sunday and Easter is the Last Supper. What a, what a perfect Sunday to take communion. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to encourage us to take a moment to pray what God has for us in this message today. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for that torn curtain that showed us with your dying breath. You were saying, I'm tearing down every boundary that keeps you from me. I want you to come to me. Lord, I pray now that you show us, you teach us, you train us to never stitch that curtain back up. Leave it split open for anyone to come to you, Lord. Let us be that living temple, those living stones that make up your temple that goes where people are. In our family, our neighborhood, our workplace, our friends, and say, I want to know about that God. And it's and yes, Lord, we always want to be able to bring them in for discipleship in the house, but Lord, they may not, but let us not stop there. Let us not, Lord, put you back into temple made by human hands. That's not where you want to be. Lord, let us lead people to you right where they are. Let us, Lord, get fed and, and equipped and ready and filled up, Lord, here. And let us take that out there, Lord, where people are, where they need to know you. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Extend that tent, Lord, open wide, Lord, for us to be able to reach the lost. To anyone who willing to call on your name but have access to you Lord thank you Lord for this in Jesus name Amen I'm going to encourage you to spend some time with the Lord we're going to do a worship song and then close with communion I encourage you to seek the Lord on, on what this looks like in your life This is Paul instruction on the Lord's Supper. Again, what a perfect day to perfect day to do this. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we get ready to take the bread, the little cellophane on top there, you can peel that back and access the bread. What does it mean that he's... That curtain was ripped from top to bottom because he sacrificed his body on the cross, gave us access to God, not through animal sacrifices, not through a temple anymore. All of that was done in faith for what God was going to do right here. Sacrifice himself, pay for our sins. And that's what we're going to remember right now. let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for giving your body as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. No amount of our effort, our worship, we could never build enough temples, we could never do enough sacrifices, we could never do anything, Lord, to bridge that gap between you and us. So you did it. Lord, we thank you that you bridged that gap between us. You tore down those barriers. You said, I will not fail to provide salvation for you. I will not let you go and perish. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name, let's take the bread together. Corinthians, it says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. covenant fulfilled, that old covenant, all those tabernacles, temples, and sacrifices fulfilled in Jesus' blood, his sacrifice. And we do this, do we do this only to remember the past? No. We do this because we know he's coming again. That's, that's good news. It's not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's something that we look forward to his return. Let's take the cup together. in prayer here but I want everyone I want everyone to know if you need prayer for anything feel free to come up altar altar is open 
we love praying for people. So if you need prayer for anything, I'm gonna I'm gonna close and dismiss us here in prayer. But if you if you need prayer, feel free to come up. I'd be happy to pray with you. Rest uh, rest of us would also be happy to pray with you. So Lord, we we thank you, Lord, again. Lord, we we do this now in remembrance of you, and Lord, we look forward to coming back together next week and celebrating your resurrection, Lord. Lord, we proclaim that your death was sufficient to save us, Lord, to tear those boundaries down, Lord, in our, but our future hope is in your resurrection, Lord. That gives us hope. You're coming back for us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for that in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray you bless everyone here. Keep them safe as, as they leave. Thank you so much for this church family that is such a blessing, Lord. May you extend our boundaries, Lord, according to your will and in your timing. Teach us, Lord, every step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. over everyone who's in within reach of these words right now. May you be blessed. May you be safe in Christ's love. Father, just reach each and every one that can hear right now. Touch them, Lord. Draw them to you in Jesus' name. Amen.